So we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 32 through 37 today. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to read the read the text uh, because I'd like to uh, kind of back up and kind of look at what's been going on in chapter seven as a whole, because I think it will it will and just kind of refresh our memories on what exactly Mark is doing with these with these little stories. So uh, we we saw the uh, the making all things clean, making all foods clean. We saw the casting out of the demon from the, the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. And now we're going to look at uh, Jesus's healing of the, of the deaf and the, and the mute man. And uh, so these things, they, they, they kind of seem as though they don't fit. It's like, what are all these things doing kind of strung together in this chapter? Um, and of course, we should, we should keep in mind that there weren't chapter divisions uh, when they were first written, but what are they doing in the same context, right? What's going on in, in these stories, and how do, we, how do we make them fit together into some unified theme, or is there one, right? Is there something that is actually happening, uh, something that Mark intends for us to, to get from these collections as a whole rather than just simply taking one of these stories out and saying, oh, what does this mean? How do we apply this? What do we go and do as a result of reading this story? So we're going to back up just a little bit and, and take a run at it um, and, uh, and, then, and then move into verses 32 through 37. So Mark chapter 7, 32 through 37. Let's, uh, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have, uh, that you have loved us uh, with an everlasting love. We thank you that um, you saw fit within your eternal purposes and from the beginning to, uh, to gather both Jew and Gentile into one body, uh, your church. And uh, Father, we just thank you that uh, you have blessed us with those blessings, all the blessings of the kingdom, of healing, of hearing, of speaking, uh, all these things. And uh, we're truly grateful. We pray that you would be with uh, with us this day as we seek to hear what you have to say from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at Jesus casting out of the unclean spirit from the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Now, if you'll recall, uh, that particular episode, if, we, if you read it, it's just a few little short verses. Uh, he had gone into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he was trying to get away from everyone, because he had just said some really, uh, some things that are, are quite dangerous to say in that world, and he was getting away from the crowds, and the woman comes to him and, and says, my daughter, look, she's been, she's been plagued with this demon, with this unclean spirit, and, and then he, he, he listens to her reply, he says, look, it's not right for me to, to take what is the children's and give it to the dogs, and she said, yes, Lord, I know, but but even the, uh, even the dogs get the crumbs, right? So, uh, and he says, you know, basically, he doesn't say it, but he's like, wow, she knows who I am, right? She gets it. She believes. And this, this is the point that I didn't bring out clearly is that it's the faith that he's responding, that he's responding to. And, and faith is actually like the context in which Jesus does everything. Does he do anything if no one believes? And that's the 
That's the question. It's a very serious one to, to think about. Um, if you are unbelieving, will he do for you? Right? That's, a, that's the question. Should we, um, we should think about that. The question, though, that arises from that exorcism is what makes this exorcism any different than the other ones, right? There are lots of these little stories about Jesus casting out this demon, that demon, or the legion of demons. What's going on with these? Just saying that it is another exorcism doesn't adequately explain what is going on when Jesus is doing this sort of thing. Perhaps we might say Jesus is going around just showing that he is God, showing us who he is, so that we, he might produce faith. But this doesn't adequately explain all the variations on the exorcisms and healings. Nor does it explain, and this is very important, why he doesn't just heal everyone. Right? Why doesn't he heal everyone? Is that his purpose? Is it his purpose to just go about healing people? Yes and no, but not necessarily to heal our mortal flesh, right? So the healing, and perhaps this is one thing that it's pointing to, is that there is a healing that's much more significant than the healing of the flesh. Why, if he really is trying to make the point that he is God in the flesh, that he's divine, and if that is the whole point of it all, why didn't he simply heal everyone? All of us have had these types of questions when we read these stories. I know I have. It's like, well, he's, he's a healer. Why didn't he just line everyone up who was sick and heal them all? He could do it, right? right? That must not be his goal. Often these are inadequately answered. Only one thing can explain these great miracles, and specifically these exorcisms. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. These exorcisms in particular seem to reflect the battle that he alone is waging against a kingdom. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is a sign that things are changing, that there is a war going on, and it's not a war against the Pharisees or the scribes or anyone. It's a, it's a war against the dark powers. These exorcisms in particular reflect that battle that is going on. This, I think, is the reason why you don't have you don't have an emphasis on this before Jesus arrives on the scene. People aren't going around casting out a bunch of demons. Maybe here and there. Nor do you have an emphasis on this afterwards, right? This is just, it's something very specific to Jesus' time. He alone seems to be, be coming up against these forces and casting them out and meeting the Satan, right, and, and resisting him. These are signs that something is changing. The kingdom of God is breaking in to this world. He seems to have seen himself as fighting a battle with the real enemy, and he regarded the exorcisms 
or healings of those whose condition was attributed to the work of Satan as a sign that he was winning the battle. In the book of Mark, he doesn't say this so straightforwardly. He doesn't tell us exactly what all these mean, and he leaves it for us to put the pieces together. In chapter 3, he simply tells us that his kingdom is undivided. And then, recalling language from the Exodus, from Moses and his confrontation with Pharaoh, he says that the scribes and the Pharisees have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by attributing his work to the work of Satan. But he doesn't explain exactly why he's doing these great works. He then proceeds to cast out demons as he goes about his ministry, but without much of an explanation. But if we read between the lines and pay close attention to the role that these mighty works are playing within his ministry, we will see that these are to be viewed as signs, as pointers to the fact that the kingdom of God has now arrived in Jesus himself, and he is defeating the dark powers that have held the world in captivity. Now, what becomes more important then is to flesh out exactly what it means that the kingdom of God is coming. Yes, it means that these powers are being defeated. Yes, it means that the world is, is being freed from the chains that bound it. But what does it mean exactly? And what are the various senses in which the kingdom of God is coming? This is the question that Mark is answering and the other gospel writers. But he doesn't make a list and say, okay, well, the kingdom of God means this and this and this and this. No, he tells stories, stories of the overthrow of a strong man, story, stories of encounters among the nations with unclean spirits, with demons, the dark powers that have held the nations in their grasp. He expects us to know the story of Israel and the nations and the slavery that the nations have brought on Israel. And the way in which in the past he has, he has delivered his people from slavery. He expects us to know the story of the slavery of Egypt and the exodus that follows, put simply. But even since the beginning, since Adam and the nations have been the nations, exiled from the garden, from God's temple, from the life of God, from the beginning, the world has been held in the grasp of the evil one. And now the time has come for that to change. The nations have been in exile under the sway of the powers, under the rule of sin. We see in the next generation following Adam that sin is at the door and it seeks to rule you. But it shall, you shall rule over it, God says to Cain. What is the point of all this? A very short little story to show that in the generation following Adam, what Adam wrought on the world was a slavery to sin, that sin would, had infested all of mankind as a result of Adam, and that there was a seed that was coming to rule over it, to, to yield its death blow. The nations have been in exile under the sway of the powers, under the rule of sin, but Israel herself, who was to be the light of the world. Israel too, who was to be the servant to the nations. What if she finds herself among the nations in exile? What if she, the light of the world, is in darkness? Deuteronomy 4.25 
says essentially that, 425 and following. This is when Israel is, is on the other side of the, of the Jordan. They have not yet come into the land, and Moses says something that is, it's astounding. They have not taken the land, and Moses says, you are not going to live long in the land. The Lord is going to, to exile you from the land. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. He will scatter you among the nations. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve, and note that language, you're going to become a slave again. You're going to serve gods, the works of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor smell, nor eat. And, and listen to this language. Idols don't hear. Idols don't see. They don't eat, nor do they smell. We will see, listen for these echoes when you hear about the deaf and the mute in these stories in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke. And also, for our purposes today, in Isaiah, because this is where Isaiah is picking up on this from Deuteronomy, and then, then the gospel writers are picking up on this from Isaiah. But the important thing is that Israel herself is going into exile. She, too, is under the power of the evil one. Here is the dilemma that Israel is confronted with. Israel is called to be the light of the world, but she too is in darkness because of her idols. What if the remedy cannot provide a remedy? What if she, the servant of Yahweh, was deaf and blind, as she is described in the first servant song in Isaiah? Hear you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? And Israel has been identified with the servant. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but you do not hear. Isaiah 42, 18 through 20. What if she, too, needed to be rescued from the exile, where she was kept under the power of sin as well? What if the whole world, including Israel, are in exile? And this is indeed the problem. This is the problem to which the kingdom of God is the solution. The kingdom of God brought about by, Jesus's, by Jesus, by Israel's Messiah and Lord, is the solution to this very problem. And we have this dynamic at work within Mark, within Matthew, within Luke, that there is something happening with Israel and the nations. You have to read these texts with that in mind. If you just think about people as people, they won't work, right? These texts will not make sense. They are living in a time where Israel is Israel, and she is to be separate from the world. She's supposed to be the remedy for the world. But she's separate. She, too, is infested with sin. And the nations are out there. They're the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel. And 
they are wanting uh, they are wanting God to defeat them. Israel is wanting God to defeat them. Jesus comes and he turns all of those things on 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 their heads. He changes things. He reinterprets things, and he he says essentially, "This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God invading the world." Under the heading, under the umbrella of the kingdom of God, we find all sorts of different things. We find healing. We find deliverance from demons, the unclean spirits, and the powers. The inauguration of the new covenant. The changing of the covenant boundaries, which we saw last week. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is going to matter, nor clean nor unclean. They're going to be reinterpreted around Jesus. Not one day of the week as a Sabbath, but perpetual Sabbath in the Messiah. All of this for the purpose of bringing about the new covenant that he made with Abraham. This is nothing other than new creation. And the combination of all these things to us in the Gentile world makes it difficult to interpret the significance of all of them when they come at us uh, together within the Gospels. Last week's exorcism falls within this framework, within the scriptural world that had created it all. We saw in that exorcism a preview of coming attractions of sorts. It highlighted two things. The powers that held people captive were being overthrown, even among the nations. Right? He had gone to the Canaanite woman, Matthew says, to the Syrophoenician woman, Luke says. The overthrow of these powers also meant that the covenant boundaries were being extended beyond Israel, as had been promised in the scriptures. Mark and Matthew make a big deal about the race of this woman in order to say this barrier, this covenantal marker that had kept Israel from the nations that was manifested in and even mandated by the law was passing away or being redrawn, we might say, around Jesus and his disciples. The old creation with its divisions into clean and unclean, circumcision and uncircumcision, was passing away. And this exorcism was a preview of that day, the day of the cross of Christ, by which he would put an end to the old world and inaugurate the new one. Paul puts it this way, but may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world, for there is neither circumcision, uh, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but new creation. He ties the cross into new creation. This is very important. What, what Paul sees and what the gospel writers see, especially if you look at, look at the gospel of John, they see that, that what happens on the cross is actually a recreating of the world. The world changes in a very significant way. We are proof of that, of course. But look at the world. I mean, we, have, we, we sit and look at the world and we think, well, it's really bad. and there are bad things going on in the world. And there sure are. But, but look at the world from the first century to now. Christianity has, has radically altered the world. Others have as well. It's not, it's not just that. But the kingdom of God coming to this earth has radically changed the world. Look at any hospital today. Who's it named after, right? Saint so-and-so, Saint so-and-so, right? In the name of these, of these saints. The world has been altered significantly. 
what Paul does and what the gospel writers do is they tie, they tie the kingdom of God, they tie the, uh, the, uh, the new creation to the cross of the Lord Jesus. And the gospels, Matthew, Mark included, are looking toward the end of the book, right? Always keep in mind that when, a, when an author is writing a book, he has in mind the beginning to the end. And so he's working this particular little, little episode toward his ending. And the ending is the cross of Christ, right? The cross and the resurrection. So he is, he is saying something even here about the cross, at least anticipating it. And one thing that he's saying is that when that day comes, now we could see this more clearly in Matthew last week. He said, I've only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Mark, he doesn't say that specifically, but he has an agenda to set, and he is going to fulfill what has been given to him. And in doing so, these barriers that were between Israel and the nations are going to be torn down. Now, in this particular story, he's returning from the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he's returning to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. In verse 31, so we're in 31 now. He's going, to, he's going to meet a deaf and a mute man. So he can't hear and he can't speak. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. He's coming back into the land. Okay? It's very important. Think about um, maybe there's some, some echoing here of Jacob. Earlier in Genesis, Jacob is going to leave the land and he's going to come back into the land. He's coming back into the land, verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, not just him, but, uh, but all those around. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. There are several things going on in this story. One is the issue of deafness and the inability to speak, which we know are, in the real world, are closely aligned with one, aligned with one another. Like, what I mean is, we know that if you can't hear, you can't speak very well, right? Because we depend on hearing ourselves speak um, in order to speak plainly. Okay, so this is it's quite normal for these two, these two things to appear together. These present themselves to Jesus. We will return to this. Secondly is the issue of not telling anyone. Jesus doesn't want the one who was deaf and the mute to speak, nor anyone who heard him. We have seen this before. And it was always curious why he wouldn't want anyone to know about such great things. Chapter 1, verse 34, he was not permitting the demons to speak, for they knew who he was. Which is probably okay. Maybe you don't want them testifying about who you are. 
But in 3, 11, and 12, there's also not permitting the unclean spirits to speak. And yet something, uh, sometimes he does permit someone to speak. Uh, admittedly, it's not, a, it's not a demon. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had the demon possessed, uh, who had been demon possessed, was imploring him that he might accompany him. This is in chapter 5, 18 through 20. And he did not let him, and he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is where he is now. He's returned to the Decapolis, but earlier he said, go tell everyone what great things Jesus has done for him. And everyone was amazed. Something is different this time. Now he's back in the Decapolis and he tells the man and the people not to say a word. The more he tells them not to, the more zealously they proclaim it. Why would he ever say, go tell, and then say, do not tell? Something has changed within his ministry. His fame is such now that he is being viewed as a threat to the stability of the region and, as we saw last week, a threat to the way Israel was to be Israel. He is calling into question the symbols of the Jewish world. He is gaining authority by his actions and teachings. It is now becoming more and more dangerous for him to speak openly, so he's doing it secretly. He must speak and he must act, but these are the very things that keep getting him into trouble. But it is his mission and he must continue. So all he can do is say, don't speak, don't speak, keep quiet, let me fulfill my mission. But as he knows, as he knows, it's all going to lead to his death anyway, but he seems to be grasping for more time to, do, to accomplish his purpose. And though he knows as we're about to find out in chapter 8. So in, in chapter 8, we're going to see um, a dramatic change in the story. His own death is going to be viewed as the climax of his ministry. In order to accomplish his mission, he's attempting to keep the news of his miracles a secret. But it doesn't help to prevent the news of him from spreading when you heal, heal someone who hasn't been able to speak or hear his whole life, right? And perhaps he knows that. And this brings us to perhaps a central point of this pericope. In the first century Jewish world, and indeed for much of Israel's life, the blind, the deaf, the mute, and the lame were, to put it lightly, at a disadvantage. But not in the way that we think of disadvantage that is, unable to participate in and enjoy all that life has to offer. That's what we think of. The poor guy, he's, he's deaf, he's blind, he can't, he can't function in the world, he's at a real disadvantage. This is not what they are thinking of. He's at a disadvantage in the realm of doing what God required of his people. If you can't hear, you can't hear the Torah. And thus, you can't obey God. You think I'm joking? You think I'm joking? I'm not joking. If you can't hear the Torah, you can't obey God. If you can't see, you can't see the Torah, 
nor can you distinguish between the clean and the unclean, the mixture. It's not altogether clear how strictly this was being observed in the first century, but at Qumran, the Dead Sea, right, Dead Sea Scrolls, you've heard of those? They were very serious about this. Listen to one of these texts. No light-minded fool shall come into the congregation, neither shall any simple-minded or errant man, nor one who has dimmed eyes who cannot see, nor a limping or lame or deaf person, nor a young boy. None of these shall come into the congregation, for the holy angels are in their midst. Right. That's one place. They could not come into the congregation. They were not fully Israelite. If you were deaf, you were blind, you were outside of the congregation. It seems bizarre to us. But this is what's going on, and this is what Jesus is dealing with. For QMMT, which is a very important text from Qumran, it says this, For all the sons of Israel should beware of any forbidden unions and be full of reverence for the sanctuary and concerning the blind who cannot see, so as to beware of all mixture, and cannot see a mixture that incurs, and then there's a uh, lacunae there, you can't read the rest of it, and concerning the deaf who have not heard the laws, and the judgments, and the purity regulations, and have not heard the ordinances of Israel, since he who has not seen or heard does not know how to obey, Nevertheless, they have access to the sacred food, but what's implied here is that they can't come into the holy place. They can't come into the temple. They're excluded. This is very significant. Why does Jesus go about healing the sick, uh, restoring sight to the blind? Why does he do this? Why does he, why does he heal their ears? They are separated from the life of Israel. They are outside of the camp. They are cut off in some way from the life of God. To be blind, lame, mute, defective in some way was to make one less than a full Israelite. The idea is this. Jesus is not simply going about being God all over the place and showing how great he is, per se. He is doing that, but he is doing more than that. He is doing what the scriptures have tasked tasked the servant with. He was bringing back into the congregation and into the temple, which we will find out later in chapter 11 and 12, is Jesus himself, those who were kept out. He's bringing them into the congregation. The blind, the lame, the ignorant, the mute, the ones who had an issue of blood, the skin diseases, the lepers, all of these. These had been ostracized and they were, as it were, outside the camp of Israel. Thus, in a very real way, what Jesus is doing is building a new community, a new family, a renewed Israel, one that does not exclude the blind but heals them. This is what the Qumran community called themselves a yachad, a community, from the word for one. They were a holy community. And this is what the, the Jews of the first century were seeking to do. And he brings healing to those who are outside, brings them back into the people of God. This is not simply feel-good theology. This is not simply saying, oh, everyone's okay. No, this is, this is healing things and bringing, uh, bringing healing to those who are in need, who are outside of the, of the promises of God. 
And this, returning back to our main point, is what it means to inaugurate the kingdom of God. At least this is one aspect of it. Bringing about a family. Why does Abraham... So one, one aspect of the, of, of the covenant, uh, one aspect of the kingdom of God is the covenant made with Abraham. If you think back to the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 15, the beginning of Genesis 15... The Lord appears to Abraham, and he says, look, your reward is going to be very great. And Abraham says, how can my reward be very great? Now, we think he's talking about going to heaven or something. He says, I don't have a child. How can my reward be great? He equates, he equates the reward with a seed, with a child, which is exactly what he should be doing. What God has promised Abraham is that he is going to make a family for Abraham. And what Jesus is saying is that now that extended family is coming about. The Syrophoenician woman represents the outsiders who, who were the Canaanites in that time. They are going to be brought into the family of God. This, uh, this deaf and mute one represents those within Israel who had been excluded from the life of God. This is what it is about. He doesn't come right out and say it, but he is, he is hitting on all of these covenantal ideas. They had been outside, they will be brought in. It is this thrust, too, that leads to, the, uh, to Paul's idea of what it means to be the church. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female. Things have changed with the new return from exile. This had been laid out in Isaiah's gospel. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it's not, it's, it would take a lot of time to unpack it, but this had all been laid out in, in Isaiah's gospel. I think of later on in, in uh, toward the end of the uh, end of Isaiah, he says that he's going to give to the eunuch a seed, and a family. Right? This is basically Abraham language, where he's taking those who have, been, um, who have been ostracized from the community, and he's going to make them part of the community. This has all been laid out in Isaiah's gospel. Isaiah himself had been given the task of announcing the fate of Israel. In chapter 6, he had, he had been told to go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. There's our theme once again. If you just do a quick search of, of Isaiah on, on seeing and hearing and, um, and speaking, you'll be amazed at how much it shows up because it's a major theme of his. These people that Isaiah was going to would be unable to hear or understand until a great return from exile. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, he says, um, the Lord appeared to him and he says, uh, who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. He says, what shall I say when I go? And the Lord says, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly 
desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. What is this describing? This is describing an exile out of the land and then a return from exile. And this is going to be the time when God restores Israel. But during this time, there are going to be people whose hearts are hard, their ears are dull, and their eyes are dim. That situation would endure for some time, but things would eventually change. In Isaiah 29, 18 through 19, he says, On that day, speaking of the last days, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Sounds very familiar. The deaf will hear, and the blind will see. This is a way of describing uh, the new creation, the return from exile. He is enabling some to hear, and he's closing the, uh, closing the ears of those who do not believe. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 32 that the eyes of those who see will not be blinded any longer, and the ears of those who hear will listen. And then in chapter 35, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Now what will happen when that happens? The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For the waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. What is all this describing? Well, for one, it is describing what Jesus is reenacting here in the Gospel of Mark. He is reenacting Israel's return from exile, her forgiveness of sin, and everything that had come along with that, because of which she had gone into exile. This is all now underway. Once again, he is saying, what time is it? It is time for Israel to come out of exile. And this is the time when the nations will become part of the covenant promises. The renewal of all creation is now underway through the restoration of those who are outside the community and the temple. And the bringing in of the Gentiles is going to be central within the covenant promises. What does this mean for us? Number one, we have become part of the community of Israel, sharing in the covenant promises that were given to their fathers. We could speak at length about the way that Paul appropriates the history of Israel for the Gentiles, for us. Perhaps we can look at it. But think of the way that he says 
in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who are the circumcision? Well, it's those people who are in Christ. There are many, many other ways that Paul appropriates the language of Israel and says this refers to us, Jew and Gentile alike. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, where he describes our fathers, talking to a bunch of Corinthians, who were under the cloud with Moses as they were coming out from Egypt. Our fathers. We have been grafted in to Israel. Because we are in the community, we too have been given the vocation of welcoming, welcoming those who are broken, broken and being part of their healing. As we ourselves all know too well, we all need healing. And we need to be uh, inclusive of those who have troubles. And he it is, lastly, who gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. If anyone hears, it is because the Spirit has called. And he alone enables us to speak the truth, to testify of him. And I would invite anyone here, we, we do not know, we do not know whom the Lord has called. The Lord is calling you, whatever it may be, to come to him for the first time and to receive him. I invite you to, to come, uh, speak to us. I'm glad to lead you in that direction. And also uh, those who may be getting a sense of, of your own calling in the world within the kingdom of God. Think about it, those of you who are young, those of you uh, young, old, whatever. Think about your calling. Think about what it is that the Lord wants you to do. It doesn't mean you go and, and preach, but it might. Think about what the Lord is calling you to do.